0: I'm going to need every minute tonight, this is a long one, I'm just warning you, I've just, just started to give you just warning that this is going to be a good long one, but it's, it's alright. We're going to try to finish chapter 14 tonight, but I wanted to focus my attention on a couple of things that we didn't uh, do last week when we were dealing with the person, I should say the being actually, of, of, of Lucifer in this passage here in Isaiah 14. So what I'd like for you to do is go to Isaiah 14, verse 12, which is a, a passage we read last week and, and studied uh, for, you know, in a good way, but I, I want to kind of add to some things that we, uh, that we saw last time and build on that, uh, on that very thought. Isaiah 14, verse 12. before we read it let's uh, let's pray father we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to come together tonight to read and to study your word we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon each and every one of us grant us wisdom that we may rightly divide your word tonight as we deal with this particular topic of the fall of lucifer and that which led to his his fall from heaven. We, We pray that we will learn much from this to keep us, Lord, focused upon the cross, focused upon the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us from the bondage of sin and death, that indeed, Lord God, you have saved us in the wiles of the enemy, though each and every day we need, Lord, your armor to combat the fiery darts of the wicked one. And So, Lord, we pray for that today, that you would guard us and guide us, protect us, as we study your word tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to shale, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? Before we move on from the being known as Lucifer and and continue our study in chapter 14, I'd like to add a few things of importance in dealing with heavenly creatures, or as the scriptures call them, principalities and powers, in particular, Lucifer, now Satan. It is quite a staggering thought that Lucifer had some obvious idea that he could be successful in his rebellion against God. It's a staggering thought that a created being would look toward the Creator Himself and think that He had the power to sit where God sits. Now, he knew the power of God. The power of the angels who would remain faithful to God. He knew his own power and he knew the power of the angels who would remain, uh, who would actually rebel with him, I should say. And still there was that idea that he could be successful in overthrowing the authority of God in eternity. Remember now that Babylon was... uh, was the focus of God's judgment in chapters 13 and 14. But we see in verses 12 and following a, a shift in Isaiah's style. A shift in the style of his writing. A shift in the style of his, uh, uh, of his approach here. From verse 12 onward, we see the, the prophet shifting gears, as it were. And rather than focus on the king of Babylon, he turns our attention to the power behind the king of Babylon. It is the power behind that king that he addresses our attention to. If we, if we go back to the statements in verses 9 through 11, we can see that the object of the voices from the underworld is the literal king. That we know. We go back, if you will, to verse 9. It says, Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. And again, we, we covered this last week, but this is review. Uh, Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It is raised up from their thrones, all the kingdoms of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. And those pictures there are really giving an indication that this is still focused on a literal king, a person, uh, let's say, like Nebuchadnezzar, or, or as we said last week, Bel- Belshazzar, the, uh, or Belshazzar, the, uh, uh, the grandson of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was overthrown by, uh, by the Medes. But uh, it's interesting about these statements, something we didn't mention last time, and I wanted to focus on that. What's interesting about these statements by those who had gone to death before the king of Babylon is that they are conscious and they are aware of their predicament. Those that are speaking are conscious and aware of their predicament, and this certainly contradicts, uh, contradicts the idea and the teaching of something called soul sleep. When a person dies, they just go into this, this state of, of, of sleep and, 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 and loss of consciousness and They're very conscious as you see them speak. Soul sleep is not a a, a biblical thing. It's not something that the Bible teaches. So this is very clear then, that there's a consciousness in those who have died without God, died separated from God. They're aware of where they are. And they're aware of the predicament in which they are in. But remember that the scope now changes in verse 12. For a spirit being, one fallen from heaven, a celestial being, as it were. We said last time that there are those who teach that this passage in verses 12 through 17 is not at all connected to Satan whatsoever. But with further digging into the text, we will see that connection. And we need to see that connection. Those who say that this is not about, about Satan and it's only uh, just focused on, on on people that have gone before, and they're using you know that Isaiah's using language that, that kind of makes him priestly or kingly or or so, or, or angelic or whatever. Uh, they haven't done their homework, you see. There's a connection here that we need to see. Take first of all the name given. We talked a little bit about this last time. The name given uh, to Lucifer. Lucifer, morning star, son of the morning, son of the dawn, light bearer, and we mentioned the name The Shining One. All of these names can be attached to the name Lucifer. It comes from a word, Halel, in Hebrew. The word Halel is attached to the word Halel, which uh, some of us know as, as, uh, as meaning to give praise or praise. Hallelujah is praise to the Lord. And, uh, and so this, this one particular angel, uh, in, in effect, is, is given the name of Lucifer, light bearer, but shining one and, and having reference as well, as we said last time, to the fact that he was one who probably stood before the throne of God and offered praise unto God. But consider, if you will, a passage that we should be quite familiar with. I'd like for you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And there in Genesis chapter 3, we run into another word in the Hebrew. In the English, it is a word serpent. We're aware of the serpent that was in the garden when Adam and Eve were there in the garden. And in reality, no other conscious type beast that could communicate as this one. But in Genesis 3 verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The word serpent is what I want you to look at and focus upon. Because while the word for serpent in the Hebrew, which is the word Nahash, Nahash, is pr- primarily used to mean snake or, or, or hiss, the sound that is produced by a snake. It is also a word, and, and, and this is where the tie-in comes, it is also a word that literally means one of shiny appearance. And it is dealing with that shiny appearance, or, once again, shining one. In other words, here's another word that, that translates to shining one as the word Lucifer translates to shining one as well. And so immediately we realize that verses 12 through 17 of Isaiah 14 are not about the literal king of Babylon. We are dealing now with a being belonging to the class of super angels known as cherubim or cherubs. Now, I want to get this idea out of your mind right away. That when you think of the word cherub, you're thinking of some little fat, baby looking type creature that has little wings on its back. And we think of cherubs, you know, as that. And we like the word cherub because it makes it seem like, you know, it's cheeky, you know, cheruby, cheeky, you know, little fat, you know, have a little bow and arrow and little wings spouting. Uh, But that's not what a cherub is. Cherubim are are really this this class of angels that have a tremendous responsibility and and each one that we will mention in just a moment have very distinctive uh, responsibilities before God. Now we'll see that designation in a few moments when we turn to Ezekiel, the word cherub. But as best as we can tell, by the way, remember we, uh, uh, not too long ago we also learned about the word seraph or the seraphim. And, and the seraphim here again is, 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 is uh, in English we've taken the word to mean seraphic or, you know, to have some, some kind of angelic look. You know, that's a seraphic look, a seraphim, you know, an angelic look but we we learned something about the word seraph it means fiery one <laughs> so we we really messed up the words in english you know we don't give really what they mean so anyway get, getting back to that we'll come back to uh, cherub in ezekiel but as best as we can tell there were three angels of this class of super angel as it were cherubim and each one of them is given a name in the scriptures there could be more but we know of three Of course, Lucifer is given a name. Secondly, there's an angel named Gabriel. And thirdly, there's an angel named Michael. And when Gabriel is mentioned in the scriptures, it is always in regard to his messianic mission. He has a messianic mission, and that is Gabriel. In Luke chapter 1, verse 19, this angel Gabriel comes to speak to the husband of Elizabeth, uh, who would become the father of of John the Baptist, Zechariah, and he says to him in verse 19 of Luke chapter 1, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Of course, we know as it goes on that it speaks of the coming of the one who is going to precede the Messiah. Later on, in the same chapter in Luke 1, verse 26, we see Gabriel again. It says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And of course then we know that he is sent to Mary. I believe when we look at the Gospel of Matthew in the uh, story of the coming of Jesus, that uh, though he's not named, what we... uh, Uh, Take for granted then that this is the same angel who actually speaks to Joseph. But that's Gabriel. But you'll notice, first of all, in verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So these are angels who stand before God, ready to be sent to do their certain mission or or, uh, task. There is an angel named Michael in the scriptures. And Michael is usually seen as a military warrior. On behalf of Israel. On behalf of Israel. In the book of Daniel is where we primarily see uh, mention of Michael in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 10. Now this is a very interesting passage because in Daniel chapter 10 something has been mentioned early on in that chapter uh, uh, of a a struggle that was going on in Daniel and in his prayer life uh, uh, for three weeks. But now we're, we're given this This particular statement in verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. That sounds like three weeks to me. So you see, here's here's something of of, of interest for all of us kind of to interject here in the midst of this is that our prayer life is very important. There are things going on as we're praying for ourselves or we're praying for other people. There are all kinds of forces, all kinds of things taking place in a world that we cannot see, in a a dimension that we cannot see. The Apostle Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 when he speaks of the armor of God. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And this is indeed a picture of these principalities and powers having this war uh, in, in, in the heavenlies. And it's the prince of the kingdom of Persia, uh, probably more than likely a fallen angel, and certainly not somebody that stands before God, but a fallen angel that is over Persia and, and struggling with Michael, uh, one of the chief priests, as you'll read on. One of the chief priests uh, came to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, if you read on down to chapter 12, of Daniel verse one, it says, "At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people." So now we know that Michael is that angel that has the, the, the care of a whole nation of, and that is the whole nation of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And of course, that's pointing to the tribulation period. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. So Dan, uh, Michael, I should say, is mentioned in the book of Daniel flies here. But then later on, there are two things that, that we are given in the New Testament. One is in Jude chapter 1, chapter well, Jude is only one chapter anyway, but in Jude verse 9, here he mentions Michael. He says, yet Michael the archangel. So there's a designation in the Greek that we're given about these types of angels. Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, who is Satan, who is Lucifer fallen from heaven, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, I want you to keep that thought in mind. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But here again, Michael is contending with the enemy. When they disputed about the body of Moses. Well, we don't want to get into that whole detail because I don't have time to do that. But uh, we, we may one of these days. Then in Revelation 12 verse 7 it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with a dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. So we see then the warrior Michael. An archangel. And and we can apply then that that label of Cherubim as well, or cherub to that. And as we go back now to verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah 14, our text, we need to ask this question. Where did sin begin? Where did sin begin? Well, sin didn't begin in the garden, as some people believe. We think sometimes that you know sin just started because of, of uh, what Eve did and being tempted. But there had to be some reason why that temptation came. It, to, it came from someone. It had to have come from before. So sin didn't begin in the garden as some people believe. It began prior to Genesis chapter 3. And what all of these scriptures put together teach us is that it began in the heart of of Lucifer. It began in the heart of Lucifer and what we saw last week as the five I wills of Lucifer, of verses 13 and 14. And when you look at those five I wills which we covered last week, what we see there is the ultimate ego trip. That is the ultimate ego trip. I will, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. North. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That is the ultimate ego trip and that has one word attached to it and that is the word pride. Pride. And you know when you study the scriptures the one thing that God hates the most, the thing that God hates the most is pride. The thing that God hates the most is pride. And the thing that causes you and me the most trouble is what? Pride. That's what causes the most trouble in our own lives. Is it any wonder that that we are admonished constantly in the Scriptures about the proud heart? Time and time again, I wish I had time to go over every Scripture. There's too many of them. I'll give you a few. Let me see how long is my list. Take, for example, Psalm 10, verses 2 through 4. Listen carefully and watch it. Look at it. Mark it in your Bible. Psalm 10, verses 2 and 4. Mark these scriptures. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none... Of his thoughts, folks. Let me let me quickly interject here as well. That if you were to say, as a Christian, he says, "I don't have to worry about pride." Boom! You just have to worry about pride. You just bore reason to worry about pride. When you say you don't have to worry about it, well, your pride just came out. You understand now why it's important for us to, under, to to see to see these scriptures and to mark them. I don't need to mark those scriptures. I know it. I know, I don't have any pride. Whoa, whoa, you just boasted. Sorry. Boom. Ah, cut, you know, you messed up. Psalm 31, verse 23. Mark this. Oh, love the Lord, all you, his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. I don't want to be repaid. I don't want to be paid for pride. I hope and pray that our pride was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if, the pride, if our pride was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ, and we're dead to ourselves, we're dead to sin and we're alive in Christ. But we're humbled by that. Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who is haughty or who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. Folks, when we go to heaven, there's not going to be any pride over there. There's not going to be even room for it. It's despised by God. Proverbs eight verse thirteen says, "The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the per- and the perverse mouth. I hate." Wow, man, that that boy, that's scary. that should scare us, folks. How, how many people have a perverse mouth? Don't raise your hands. I'm not asking you to do. It. But think about, the, think about this. How many people have perverse mouths in our day and time today? Perverse mouths. We, we, we've been watching on TV unless you've got your head stuck in the sand. You know, some comedian used to be on Seinfeld. You know, go off in some com- comedy club, you know, and, and, and railing on, on somebody. You know, it was just racial things going on and on and on. But man, it was perverse because it wasn't just what he was saying. It was other things, you know. And you think, and th- this is on TV, they're bleeping him out. And you know, they never bleep him on time. Almost, you almost have to think, wait a minute, here I'm this is a news program, I don't want to hear this garbage. But there are people today in our own you know, in our own circle of of life, as it were, you know, that, that are just you know, the, the, the mouth is so perverse. This one is one of those areas where we better check our own lives, we better check our own hearts. Why? Because look at what he says. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. He hates pride. He hates arrogance. He hates the evil way and the perverse mouth. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Man, that's even heavier. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Folks, that's going to come to pass at the end. And the armies of the nations of the world gather against God, led by Antichrist. Eventually all nations will go against God. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Lastly, but not lastly, just lastly for us tonight because there's a whole bunch of others, but Proverbs 16, and we've we've, we've looked at this one before, you should have it marked already in your Bible. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But add verse 19 to that because it says better to be of a humble spirit with a lowly than to divide the spoil with a proud. Better to be with, of a humble spirit with a lowly. Why are, there all kinds of, why are there all kinds of problems even in the church with people? It's easy, simple. It's an easy answer, man. It's pride. Somebody's got pride. People aren't willing to to lower, you know, just to lower themselves to the ground and, and, and just humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. We sang about that tonight. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he'll pick you. Families are falling apart because of pride. Marriages are collapsing around us because of pride. It's pride, folks. P R I D E, pride, and the very middle letter of that word is the word, or the letter I. That's the problem. It's always the other person. That's pride, folks. But you can't humble yourself in the sight of Almighty God, and then you hear these things. oh, <laughs> You're Why we're in such trouble right now? Well, getting back to our text, I better hurry too because I've got to finish this chapter. Getting back to our text in verses thirteen and fifteen, we are introduced. We're introduced to a couple of Hebrew idioms. I'll explain that in a moment. Isaiah fourteen, verse thirteen. Lucifer says, "For you have." Uh, well, it is said in, in the prophecy toward Lucifer, "For you have said in your heart." And he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will, sit also, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. And here's the idiom on the farthest sides of the north. You say, what does that mean? Well, that's why it's an idiom. I'll explain. But on the farthest sides of the north. If you look at verse 15, there's another idiom. It says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, and here's the other idiom to the lowest depths of the pit. The lowest depths. Of the pit now the first idiom is sides of the north which speaks of limits it speaks of borders an idiom actually is a, is a statement that's made that doesn't ring clear when you hear it but there's an explanation to it so the first idiom then is sides of the north which speaks of limits it speaks of borders or uh, some kind of uh, parameters of the earth it is used in reference to And this is how it's used in the Scripture. It is used in reference to having command of the earth. Understand what I'm saying? It's used in reference to having command of the earth. In other words, it is a term, for example, used also in Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2. We used to sing this great psalm years ago. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. In his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. now notice this: is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king? We would immediately think, well, the sides of the north, so it's 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 talking about location in in, in particular, but you have to understand that it's it's really dealing with the mount it's dealing with the throne. It's dealing with where God is. You see, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the Holy His mountain on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. But notice what, what, what it was that, that Lucifer said, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. Sit on the mount in command of the earth, in command of the parameters when he says on the farthest sides of the north. To, to understand an idiom of this type, you have to think of another statement found in Psalm 103, verse 12. It, 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 the, the part that makes sense to us is the part that we really love. It says, as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But it's the idiom, as far as the east is from the west, that we just kind of say, well, whatever that means. See, but it means something. As far as the east is from the west tells us that east never, never, never meets west. When you go east, you're always going east. You'll never meet west. Because there's no west pole. And there's no east pole. You just keep going east. That's how far our sin has been removed from us. You see, that's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful idiom. How far is east from the west? We can't measure that like we can measure north to south. I don't know exactly how far it is from North Pole to South Pole, but there's, you know, if you measure it, I mean, it's eight thousand miles, something like that. I don't know, maybe it's more. But 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 you can keep going east and never really get to west. And so it, it brings us then to the second idiom in verse fifteen, which is to the lowest depths of the pit. What Does that mean? How do we measure that? Is it measured then as, as borders in the pit in in, in the abyss? What is significant about this statement, and, and, and this is what we need to understand here, what is significant about this statement is that re- it refers to recesses, it refers, it refers to sides or borders of the abyss. And so to understand why these two, are, are, uh, these two verses and these two idioms are where they are, here's the whole thing. You may not understand the full picture of it, but we can understand this. When you put the two idioms together where Lucifer says, I, I, will, I want to sit on the, uh, on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. But he's told that he's going to sit in the lowest depths of the pit. Do you know what it says? That's when we can see that Lucifer's ambition, his ambition was to set on the sides of the north. But his destiny will be the sides of the pit. That's why those things are there. His ambition is the sides of the north. His destiny is the sides of the pit. And that's it. We don't understand it fully, do we? But we understand one thing. He wanted one thing. He's getting something totally different. But yet, the language that the prophet uses is is just, of course, inspired by God for us to realize. The pictures that God draws. He wants to sit in, in control of the earth. Instead, he's going to be in the deepest side of the pit, of the abyss. And so as we come now to verses 16 and 17 of of Isaiah 14, notice what it says. Those who see you will gaze at you. And consider you saying, is this the man who made the the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? And of course people will say, well, see, it says man. And in fact, you can apply that to the king of Babylon. But then it says, Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? And remember again that Isaiah brings us to focus upon the power of the king of Babylon, who was Lucifer himself. And at this point we have to turn to the parallel passage of Isaiah 14 where we find that Ezekiel does exactly what Isaiah does. Ezekiel does exactly what Isaiah does in that he shifts gears to go far beyond speaking of a mortal being, in this case the king of Tyre, and refer to a spiritual and celestial being. So turn to Ezekiel 28. And one way for you all to remember to put these two uh, passages together is to remember Isaiah 14 and then the multiple of 14, which is 28, uh, twice 14. It wasn't that way. God didn't design it so much that way. Man put the but, but, you know, God worked it out so we can remember things. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. The first 10 verses speak about the king of Tyre. In verse 11, then it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, and son of man is really just a designation to Ezekiel uh, of, of uh, not, not so much the same as, as is spoken of to Jesus. This is a totally different thing. This is just you, son of a man. It says, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Stop. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Who was there in Eden? Think about it. Every precious stone was your covering." The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Timbrels and pipes, those are musical instruments. What did we say about Lucifer? He was involved before the throne of God in prayer. What did it say about the stringed instruments in, in Isaiah 14, verse 11, I believe? And then in verse uh, 14, it says, You were the anointed cherub, and there's the word, who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways, from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Where did sin begin? It began way before Genesis chapter 3. You see, when you look at these terms, the seal of perfection. You were the seal of perfection. It made it clear that He was really at the top of the heap. In regards to wisdom, in regards to beauty, what he knew, what he was given to know, how he was given to be in in the sense of his beauty on the outward. And you know what it tells us? It also tells us that, that, that he isn't stupid and he isn't ignorant. He's not, as some Christians tend to believe, a, a, an idiot. You know, they call him slew foot. And They Paint all kinds of pictures with words. There are those who go around on stages stomping on Satan. We're stomping out Satan today. Ah, you know. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. They don't know what they're talking about. And they don't know who they're talking about either. Listen to this description. Oh, by the way, I mean, it, apparently enhanced, it must apparently enhance their spiritual pride to do so. To be able to say, oh, you know, we, we're powerful over Satan. And be very careful how you say that. Much like the atheists who speak derogatorily about God. Certain Christians speak that way about, about the enemy. But did you know that the Word of God forbids this? In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Peter says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Notice this phrase, despise authority. They are presumptuous self-will. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. That word dignitaries is not talking about somebody who works in the State Department. It's talking about dignitaries... In, in, in principality and power, in ruling of, of, of uh, in a, in a, in a dimension we cannot see. Notice verse 11, Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Not even angels will bring a reviling accusation against fallen angels, against demons. If those angels do not do that, why are we doing it? Going back to Jude in verses 8 through 10, we've already covered verse 9. But notice, I'm going to bring it all together here in this one thought. In verse 8 it says, Likewise also those these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. That we can do. The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. You see, Lucifer was in Eden, in the Garden of God. Of all the other descriptions, no mortal man could fit those characteristics that we read in Ezekiel and that we read in Isaiah. And in the garden there were three that we know of. Not, Of course, not not counting God, of course. God was there, certainly. But of those that were there, those creatures that were there, there was Adam, there was Eve, and there was the Nahash, the serpent, the shining one. And it talked about the appearance. Satan now using this serpent... In a, in a in a in a way that we could not, never really uh, picture in our own minds and and thoughts, it wasn't some you know wriggly looking kind of of like in the movies. You know, here comes a snake. You know, it was the glorious appearance. There was a glorious appearing. We talked about the fact that Satan becomes like an angel of light. He's a counterfeit, you see. But his mission is to oppose. His mission is to be an adversary against God and against God's people. And here in Ezekiel, he is described as a cherub, an anointed cherub. I hear people on TV talk all about the anointed. I got the anointed, and this brother has the anointed. Everybody got the anointed. Except a few people in the audience and if you'll send your money into me, you'll be get the anointing too. Get real. We all needed the anointing tonight to understand what God is giving us in his word. Not for me to dictate whether I have it and you don't. I pray God give us the anointing of the Holy Spirit to understand these things. All of us. And it also bring all of this stuff brings up another question. It brings this question up. Is evil ugly? Folks, think about the question. Don't answer it. Think about it. Is evil ugly? In what we've read so far, evil isn't too ugly. As a matter of fact, if it were, would we have so much trouble with temptations if evil is that ugly? Think about that. Our limited minds can barely understand the why of Lucifer's rebellion. But what we know for certain is that he rebelled against the sovereignty of God. And his strategy for man is to obscure the image of God in man through encouraging sin, encouraging rebellion, and to cause man to serve him. That's his plan. That's his strategy. And every time we turn our face from God and we go after the things that bless us or uh, the things that make us feel good for a time, but we're not going where God wants us to be. You know what? Where are we serving? And who are we serving? What are the greatest temptations in our life? The world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of those. And the devil uses those other two. The world and the flesh. And Today, the world and the flesh are so prominent all around us. The temptations are there. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, greater is he that is in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And you see, one day we'll see Satan for what he really is. And we will be amazed at how much power he actually has. We will be amazed. That's what verses, going back to Isaiah 14, verses 16 and 17 are telling us. We will be amazed at how much power he actually has. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities who did not open the house of his prisoners. Like the king of Babylon, he will one day be humiliated and defeated. He will be cast out of heaven and finally cast into hell. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That means there's no vacation. No vacation. There's no time out. There's no time off from the torment that they will be feeling and experiencing for eternity. And it has to be mentioned that hell was not made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. But why does man go? Because he has listened to the shining one and taken his eyes off of the true, glorious God. He's been promised the world, but he'll get nothing. The unbeliever will, will perish for an eternity in the same place that was made for the devil and his angels. That's a scary thought if you don't know Christ. It should be. As we move on in chapter 14, we're going to do our best to finish this off tonight. But as we move on in chapter 14, we come to the bloody destruction of Babylon. Let me read verses 18 through 23 very descriptive as we read it. It pretty much describes itself. comment briefly on these passages. All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. It's not a great picture, is it? You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them says the Lord of hosts and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity says the Lord. I will make I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. In this relatively brief section, Isaiah returns to focusing on the literal king of Babylon. He is given a dishonorable burial. That's the picture there. A dishonorable burial and cast out of his grave like a rejected branch. But it is given that picture because it is in contrast to the branch from the stump of Jesse, which would bear an an abundance of fruit. And we know who that is. That's Jesus. We read it in Isaiah 11, verse 1, where it it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And that branch is going to be fruitful, the branch of Christ. The contrast is given to us here of the king of Babylon. He's going to be like a stump going back over to um, Uh, verses 18 and following. 19, but you're cast out of your grave like an abominable branch. Verse 19. You're cast out like a branch. The contrast to the branch of Jesus that is fruitful, this one's not fruitful. It's dying, it's dead, and it's not going to bear fruit again. And that's, that's the whole picture here of Babylon. The destruction of Babylon, both the literal and the spiritual Babylon, will be complete. Now that's another thing that we're given in this passage. The Lord will cut off its name, And there won't even be a remnant left, sweeping it with a broom of destruction. Partially fulfilled so far, a complete fulfillment in the end. In the next section, Isaiah describes the destruction of Assyria. Verses 24-27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. By the way, if you can, mark every time you see the word purpose or purposed. There in verse 24 it says, And as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So the key word in this, pap- this passage is purpose, or purposed. In other words, the Lord is in control of the rise and the fall of nations as He works out all His divine purposes in the world. God is in control of the rise and the fall of nations. In chapter 10, we learn that Assyria was God's tool to accomplish His purposes. And the day would come when He would judge Assyria. Yes, God used Assyria, but he also said he's going to judge Assyria. Isaiah 10, verses 5 and 6. Remember this. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. But then when they came in and did what they did and the way that they did it, God says, I want to judge you because you did it that way. The judgment would take place in the land of Judah, by the way, and the Lord would be the one who judges them. Now, during Hezekiah's reign around 701 B.C., Assyria invaded Judah. But God destroyed their army as it was close to capturing Jerusalem. And in Isaiah 37, which we'll come to much later, but in Isaiah 37, verse 36, it says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians, notice, it was the angel of the Lord who went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, they were, there, there, uh, there were the corpses all dead. God killed 185,000. He judged them. That was a judgment of God. So even the, the book of Isaiah confirms this prophecy that we're reading about the Assyrians. The last section of this chapter then deals with the judgment against the Philistines, or Philistia, in Isaiah 14, verses 28 through 32. Let's read just down to verse 31, uh, because that's that's primarily the the prophecy itself. It says, This is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died, the son of Uzziah. Uh, Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper. And its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will feed and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine and it will slay your remnant. Wail, O gate! Cry, O city! All you of Philistia are dissolved for smoke will come from the north and no one will be alone in his appointed times. What will they answer the messenger of the nation? Well, I wasn't going to read it, but I'll read it anyway. What will they answer the messengers of the nation? that the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. So there are those who believe then, that the rod that struck Philistia, as we read in verse 29, that the rod that struck Philistia was Israel, while others believe that it was Assyria. In either case, the Lord would not want the Philistines to glory in the breaking of that rod. Now, the breaking of the rod means that, that the rod would be the one that God used you know, to, uh, uh, to bring down Philistia or to keep them down. And in the case of Assyria, it is thought that uh, Shalmaneser the, the fifth, who's a historical figure actually, would have been the Assyrian ruler who died, at which time the Philistines rejoiced that their enemy was weakened. But Isaiah's warning was that their rejoicing was presumptuous. Assyria's new king would be worse. In other words, whatever king came out of Shalmaneser would be worse than the one uh, that, that was dead. And Isaiah compared the dead Assyrian ruler to a snake that gave birth to an even worse serpent, that flying serpent. So in other words, the Philistines were doomed. And they were rejoicing because, you know, the, if it was the Assyrians that they were talking about, then they were rejoicing because the Assyrian king had died. And and their nation was weakened, but God would come after them with a stronger one. On the other hand, if it was Israel or Judah, then the prophecy is referring to Uzziah, the king of uh, of Israel, and and, and Ahaz, which, which caused Philistia a lot of problems, actually. But later, it would be Hezekiah who would come causing them more damage after the Philistines rejoiced that Uzziah and Ahaz were both out of the way. So the point of the matter is this, they're, they're, they're rejoicing because, you know, these, these other people's king, you know, died and that would weaken their, their particular nation. But God says, don't rejoice over that because I'm still coming to get you and whatever comes out of them is going to be stronger than you could ever imagine. So with that in mind, that's the last part of this chapter. So lastly, you'll note then that the Lord would give a special word of assurance for his own special people, Judah. For what he says here in these last few verses is that even the poorest of the poor would have food and safety and Zion would be delivered but the Philistines would be wiped out by war and famine. The Assyrians would come from the north as we saw in verse 31. If you'll notice the cloud from the north or the smoke from the north. The Assyrians would come from the north and the gates of the great cities of the Philistines would not stop them. So the Assyrians then would be that, you know, Army and and so therefore I I think it's more really Assyria than it is the Judah that it was talking about as far as the, the serpent. Lastly, the messengers from other nations would inquire as to what was happening. Hence verse 32. It says, What will they answer, the messengers of the nation? That the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. So the messengers from other nations would inquire as to what was happening, but the news, the news would focus on Judah and on Israel and not on Philistia. God's deliverance of his people was the real news. Not a serious conquest of Philistia. God's people being delivered was the real news. And it brings to mind a question as we close tonight. Will the news media today ever give the Lord credit for its care of his people, Israel? Think about the question, because I've never heard one good thing ever mentioned on on most uh, news agencies or most news channels, any good thing about Israel. Well, some are a little bit more fair than others. That most of what we consider or call the liberal media hate Israel and uh, never speak well of it. And yet here, we're told that the real news is God's deliverance of his people. The ones who should know that more than anybody else are God's people who live today who know Jesus Christ and who have a love for God and a love for God's people, a love for Israel. And we will search the scriptures to find every scripture that has the news about God's redemption of Israel. Of God's restoration of Israel. Of the very fact that today Israel exists not uh, as a fluke. It it, it, It exists today because God has been faithful to keep his word. When he said that Israel would once again be in their land. They are there. Now, they're not quite in all the land that they, that they need to be in. But that's for a time yet to come. But The news is God delivers His people. That's the news. And it isn't that one nation is destroying another because they deserve it. The news is God delivers His people. The Lord has founded Zion. And the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. Some of that is being actually fulfilled today. The many who are coming into the land of Israel from places like Russia, even Ethiopia, many other places, they're coming and they're being taken care of. They're taking refuge in the land that God said was theirs. That's news. But the news is only going to get better. Well, let me just put it this way. It will get worse before it gets better, but it is going to get better because God is faithful to keeping His Word. Let's pray.